This morning's scripture reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6, selected verses from verses 1 through 23. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. Verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. Verse 5. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us over the course of the last uh, couple months, we've been looking at the story of David, the longest presentation of a single human life throughout all of ancient literature, and that's all of ancient literature. And uh, whenever you see, whenever you read uh, narratives this lengthy in the Bible, you have to surmise, you have to conclude what makes, what breaks a human life. That's what the story of David really teaches us. And we've been looking at the elements throughout the course of the last couple months. We've been looking at things like loyalty and friendship and integrity and calling and character. And we've been looking at all these things. But this morning fitting because it's dark outside, it's gloomier outside today. This morning we're focusing on the tragedy in many ways of the presence of God, the face of God, the desire on one hand to experience God, know God, but then the tragedy of what happens when we actually experience him. What was the ark? The ark, it means chest. It was four feet 
long. It was a wooden box that was four feet long. It was overlaid with gold. And on top of that gold, we call that the mercy seat. And you had these two angels that were kind of erected there on top of that gold. And they were facing over that seat. It was really the central piece of furniture, the only piece of furniture, the central piece of furniture in the uh, tabernacle, in the temple, in the place of worship. And uh, the reason why it was there is it represented the heavy brilliance of God, the weight of the glory of God, the Shekinah presence of God was there. That's what David was after. That's what David wanted. And today we're going to learn three things then about the presence of God. The promise of the ark, the problem of the ark, and three, the provision, the way that God made with respect to the ark. First, we're going to talk about the promise of the ark. Why did David want the ark? What did the ark really give him? Because what happened was the reason why he wanted it was because it had been lost. The Philistines had captured the ark 20 years prior. The first five verses of this reading was really, it really came from an incident that took place 20 years prior when the Philistines had captured the ark. And, and even though the ark was sent back, it stayed for 20 years in a very remote place, Kirith-Jerim, and uh, it had been away from the tabernacle where the people were worshiping God. And now David has become king, and he established the capital of Israel in Jerusalem, And uh, he brought the tabernacle back to Jerusalem where the people worshipped. And now he wants the ark. He wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Now, why did he want to do that? David wanted God to be central among his people. He wanted God's presence to be central to his society, central to his culture. But it was a lot more than that. It was actually much more personal than that. David's one of the people. David was a person who wrote Psalm chapter 27, it was written in your call to worship, printed there. And he says, one thing I ask of the Lord. Verse 7 and 8, he says, I I seek you, Lord. I seek your face. In other words, David was not after just simply making God central in a society. He didn't want to just obey God. That's not what he wanted to do here. Because he'd been a leader. He's been the king. He knew the pressures that come with leaders. And he realized that if he himself didn't have a personal experience of God in his life. Day to day, he knew he would not make it. As king, as leader over God's people, he knew if he didn't have a personal experience, the presence of God in his life day to day, he knew he was not going to make it. Now, what do we mean by this personal experience, the spiritual reality of God? Because that, that's the promise of the ark. What do we mean by that? Now, we know, of course, God is everywhere. God is in all places. Of course, you can... Pray to God everywhere, anywhere, but the ark represented the face of God. It represents the immediate presence of God, the glory of God, the weight of God. It meant that we were experiencing real reality, real spiritual reality. Now, what is that? And we have to be practical. Here's what I mean. It's one thing to believe that God loves you. It's one thing to believe that God is gracious. To know, hey, I know that God is gracious. I know that God is good. I know that God is faithful. I know that God is merciful. It's one thing to know that. It's one thing to know that God approves of you, that God loves you, that he's willing to sacrifice for you. That's an intellectual concept. But David wanted more than that. Think about this. Only if, it's one thing to know that God loves you and approves of you, but only if God's approval 
Only if his love is more spiritually real to you than the love of somebody else will you stop caring about the approval of other people in your life. Only if the approval of God is more real to you, knowing that you have it, only if that is more real to you than the approval of other people, the love of other people, will you stop caring then. To that degree, will you stop caring about what other people think about you. Listen, if you say, I believe in God, I believe that he loves me, I believe that he proves of me, but you're absolutely just cast down when you're snubbed, or you're absolutely just devastated when people, you know, criticize you, or you're always getting hurt, or you shape your public life, your public image, your reputation around what other people think about you all the time, and you come home and you're angry because you felt like you looked bad in front of other people you're not really feeling the reality of the significance of the presence of God in your life. It's not real to you. The kavod glory of God is not real to you. It doesn't really press on you. When we say kavod glory, we're saying the weight of the significance of God. That means it's got to press on you. It means it's not pressing on you. That's what that means. That the joy, as a result, any joy you have is only going to be based on circumstances. David, as king, knowing the pressures in his life, He wanted a joy that transcends his circumstances. And he knew that if he had the spiritual reality of the presence of God, he knew that he could go, he could transcend these circumstances in his life. You have pressure? Now, David, David, ever since he was a king, he faced conspiracy. From the moment he became king, from the moment he was anointed, he's been running on the run in caves, fleeing, fighting giants, you know, uh, fighting civil wars in caves over and over and over again in his life, suffering after suffering after suffering from the moment he was anointed as king. That's pressure. He needed a joy that was not based on sentiment. It wasn't a feeling he was looking for. David wanted the reality of the presence of God. It's why he needed the ark of God. It's why we need, in many ways, the presence of God. That's the promise, the intimate presence of God. Now, what's the problem? Now, passages like this are incredibly difficult, and there are many of them in the Old Testament. Very difficult passage if you don't read them with the proper lens. An awful lot of people have come to me over the years, and they say, this very passage is the reason why I don't want to believe in God, why I don't believe the Bible, because of passages like this, and we need to walk through this um, as concise as possible, as brief as possible, here's what happened. Background. Hophni and Phineas, they are two sons of the high priest. The high priest's name is Eli. They're two sons of Eli. They're wicked sons. They were in charge of the tabernacle, but they embezzled money. They seduced women who would come into the tabernacle. And uh, they were incredibly evil. They were very corrupt. You see this in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And uh, when the Israelites went out to battle against the Philistines, Hophni and Phinehas said, here's a surefire way we can win. Let's bring the ark out to battle. Remember that ark? The ark is what we used when we walked around Jericho seven times with the ark. And the the walls came tumbling down. So let's just charge out to the Philistines with the ark, and we're going to win. And when the Israelites went out to battle against the Philistines, they carried this ark out with them. They charged against them. What happened? They got slaughtered. And the Philistines captured the ark, and they mocked Israel, and they mocked the God of Israel, Yahweh. They mocked him. And what they did was they brought it back to uh, their land, and they placed it, every time they placed it in one of their temples, in front of their idol, in front of their statue of their God, 
the next morning they would find out that the, that God, their idol, would be on its face. And every single time they took it to a town, they took it, to, you know, they took it to one of the towns. Plagues and tumors would start spreading in that town. And so after a while, they had they had it all, and they said, "We need to get rid of this thing. We need to get rid of the ark. It's too powerful." So what did they do? They put it on an ox cart, and they they didn't want to go near it, so they kind of pushed it, and they kind of let it go, hoping that it would just return to Israel. Now, of course, it got into Israel to a place called Beth Shemesh, and the men there said, "Oh, it's the ark." So what did they do? They always wanted to see what was in the ark. They touched the ark, they opened it up, and seventy men right there. Died. They just dropped dead. And so basically, in that area, it was just left there for 20 years. Nobody wanted to go near it for 20 years. And now David, he wants the reality of God. He wants the presence of God in his life. So what did he do? He knew what happened. He knows the history. He brings 30,000 men together, and he says, we are going to bring it back. We need to bring it back. And so what did the men do? They placed this ark onto an ox cart. Now, ox carts have no riders, like we saw. They kind of pushed it and left it go on its way to Israel. Ox carts have no riders. They placed this uh, ark onto the ox cart. And the men, there were men who kind of walked alongside it. And Uzzah was one of these guides, walking along, guiding the ox cart. And as they're going along, one of the oxen carrying the ark stumbles. And the ark is about to fall and touch the ground. So Uzzah, in this blatant, heroic, noble attempt, reaches out his hand to shield the ark from touching the ground and instantly is struck dead. Very difficult passage. Very difficult text. Here's David and this procession of 30,000 people. They're cheering and singing and dancing and worshiping. And all of a sudden, it's almost like a movie scene, Everything stops because one man lies dead on touching the ark. That's what happens. Instantly killed. Now, why did it happen? Because we need to deal with it. A lot of people want to skip over this passage because we want to talk about God's grace, but I want to submit to you, we have to address this. In light of God's grace, we have to understand this text because, number one, it's in the Bible, so there's purposeful. And two, lots of people say, again, lots of people say, because of passages like this, this is why I can't trust the Bible. This is why I can't believe in a God like this. Now, when you really go into Scripture, there are clues. There are clues everywhere. You see it in Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers. These are all books in the Old Testament in terms of how to handle the ark. There are four major rules. One, it had to be covered. Two, there were holes in the sides of the ark that you could slide poles through so that you, it would be carried. It was not to be placed on a cart. It was meant to be carried. And uh, the, number three, the people who would carry these, uh, the ark, the carry it on these, on these poles, were Levite priests. They were consecrated, specifically chosen to perform acts like this. They were trained for acts like this. And fourthly, you were not to touch it. Those are the four ru- rules. Now we know, as we read this, all four rules were absolutely violated. And a lot of commentators say, this is the reason why Uzzah died. That's the reason why he didn't follow the rules. But if you think about it, from the moment the Philistines captured the ark, they were handling it, they were touching it, they were placing it on the ox carts, they were breaking rules. And yet no one died. Why Uzzah? Why did Uzzah die? And I, and I want to say to you, 
Uzo didn't die simply because he broke the rules. The rules, breaking the rules was the trigger. Breaking the rules was a symptom. Breaking the rules, in many ways, um, was the visible, overt sin, but not the cause. The cause is much more covert. The cause is much more internal. What do the rules tell you? What do these rules actually say? In other religions, you can reach God, you can access God through your efforts. In every other world religion, you can access God, you can get to God as long as you're good, as long as you follow a certain amount of rules. In Buddhism, you have the Eightfold Path. In Islam, you have the Five Pillars. If you follow the rules in any religion, you can reach God. You can touch God. And as a result, the relics in those areas are all touchable. Everybody makes pilgrimages to touch these relics, but not the ark. The ark was always to be veiled. It's always to be covered. You don't go near it. You don't touch it. In fact, only one man once a year is allowed to enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle, in the temple. Only one person once a year And him through ritualistic ceremonial cleansing every year, once a year, is allowed to enter in and approach the ark. The ark is not to be touched, always to be veiled. And the reason why we see this is because there's a chasm between God and man created by sin, a great chasm. The ark of the covenant was God's way of saying there is a tremendous gap between God and his people, tremendous gap a huge chasm, a debt, and you can't bridge it by your works. You can't bridge it. There's no way that you personally can do anything on your own power to reach God on your own. You need a sacrifice. There needs to be atonement. There is a debt, a payment that has to be made, and that debt can only be paid through suffering and blood and death. So yes, Uzzah broke the rule, but why did he break the rule is the more important question. He was trying to do this good thing. He was trying to do a noble thing. He was trying to protect the ark. In many ways, he was trying to protect God. But Uzzah didn't believe that there was a chasm that can only be bridged by a blood sacrifice, by God's provision. That ark, those rules were set up as God's way of providing for a way to have access through sacrifice. The mercy seat was a place where the blood, once a year, one man would enter in and sprinkle blood over the mercy seat. That's the only way we can have access. You can't just go to God with your good works. No matter how noble those works are, that's what killed him. Now, thinking, this is Uzzah, thinking, of course I can reach out. I've got good intentions. I've got noble intentions. In fact, if anything, it was probably instinctive. And we're going to talk about that. But he did not believe that there was such a chasm, that that chasm was so great that God would rather have the ark touch the soil than touch his hand. Uzzah didn't believe that. Now, if you think about it, that's a very natural thing. It is the Bible saying here, Uzzah, he was being instinctive. He's jumping out to touch the ark. And the Bible's telling us it is a natural instinct for us to always think of us to always think of ourselves as greater than we are, to always think of ourselves as better than we are, to always think of ourselves as cleaner than we are. Think about the soil. God would rather have the ark touch the soil than Uzzah's hand. We look at the soil, we say, so dirty. But if you think about it, the soil is dirt. 
things grow in it. You plant things, it grows, and it grows, and you eat from it, and it feeds the world. In fact, it gives us everything we need for life. The soil is doing everything that it was designed and called to do. Are we doing everything that we're designed and called to do? No. God would rather have the ark touch his soil than to touch our hands. And we don't want to believe that. It's our natural instinct. We react against that. It's our natural instinct. Now you say, well, not really. I mean, I know I'm a sinner. All of us, most people, if you watch any of the modern, the postmodern movies of today's world, they'll tell you everything about the, the brokenness of society, the brokenness of an individual. Lots of movies, lots of books, lots of scholars, commentators across the board, whether they're religious or not, will tell you that the world is broken. We would agree with that. If you, your own personal experience, if you've ever been wronged in your life, you would understand the brokenness and the fallenness of people and who we are. But when we talk about specifically, we would all agree generally that we're sinful. But think about it. Think about the last time a friend had approached you. People who are married couples, think about your spouse. The last time your spouse had approached you, a year ago, a month ago, an hour ago, before you, just before you walked in here, if you think about it, the last time anybody who knows you has approached you and told you, this is what I think you are. Did you, this is how I think you are. This is the mistake that you've made. Did you walk away and say, thank you. You are so kind. You are so gracious. You are so wise in showing me who I am. No, what you do is, the moment you're shown who you are, you react. Because naturally, the Bible says it is natural for us to be able to react that way because in our hearts we believe we're always better than we really are. We're always better than we are. When Uzzah put out his hand, he showed that he did not understand that chasm, how great it is. And to not understand the chasm, he would fail to understand the gospel in even the slightest bit. He did not understand that there was this enormous gap that only radical grace, only a sacrifice A radical atonement was needed. And so he died because of his natural disposition, the natural disposition of our hearts to despise, to avoid, to forget at any moment, to neglect at any moment that we're always in need of the grace of God, that everything that we have, everything that we are is by sheer, sheer grace. And this picture of Uzzah, this dramatic picture of Uzzah, is basically so that God could wake David up and, in essence, then, wake us up. He's trying to wake up the king and his people. He's trying to wake us up and say, this, this is the one thing that will kill you. This is the one thing that will kill you. Now, Uzzah, if he even saw a chasm, he didn't see himself on the other side of that chasm. Clearly, he didn't see that. And, and that's what's lethal. He didn't see himself on the other side of that gap. That's what killed him. That's what's God is saying, this is what can kill you. This is the one thing that is lethal to you. Now, how is that? Think about it this way. If you live, if you live up to moral religious standards and your life goes well, what's it going to do? It's going to make you proud and it's going to make you cold. Why? Because you've earned it. You're going to compare yourself to other people, and either it's going to make you cold and proud because you have lived up to the standards and they haven't, or you haven't lived up to the standards compared to them. It's going to make you cold and proud, and as a result, you're going to become less human. It's going to dehumanize you. 
Because you're going to be less loving. You're going to be less compassionate. You're going to be less kind. You're going to be more angry. You're going to be more grumbling. You're going to be more jealous of other people. It's going to make you less human, less according to your design. But what if you live, if, what if, you, what if you, uh, you live up to these uh, religious standards? What if you live up to these moral standards and you don't get a good life? You're still going to feel like you deserve it. You're still going to feel like you've earned it because you worked so hard. And as a result, what's going to happen? You're going to be bitter, and you're going to be confused, and you're going to be cold, and you're going to be proud, and you're going to be angry, and you're going to be jealous. You're going to become that same dehumanized person, that same dehumanized version of yourself, less human. On one hand, it's because God has given you what you want. And it's going to make you cold and proud because you made it. You earned it. On the other hand, God didn't give you what you want. And as a result, you're going to be cold and proud because you deserve it. The Uzo approach is either going to make you cold and proud because you live up to the standards, or it's going to make you cold and proud because you haven't lived up to the standards. Think about it. If you haven't lived up to the standards, then you're going to be crippled by guilt. You're going to be crippled by shame. You're going to be angry, you're going to be cold, you're going to be proud, you're going to be bitter. You see how that works? You're going to become less loving, less compassionate, less empathetic to other people and their weaknesses. Friends, this is the misinterpretation of the gospel that's killing our churches today. People are cold and they're proud or they're bitter or they're confused because they either don't deserve to be here, they feel like, or because they deserve to be here and deserve to be heard. Because deep deep inside, like Uzzah, we all believe we're good enough. Haven't we done enough? Aren't we good enough to at least partly bridge that gap? And God is saying here, you got to wake up. If the ark represents the powerful glory presence of God, it reveals a tremendous problem that the chasm that exists between that glory, although it presses on us, although we desire it, although we want the thrill of the experience of God, that chasm cannot be bridged. There's nothing we can do. Something radical has to happen. Something incredible has to happen. And that leads us to the last point, the provision. What is the provision? David, now in seeing the death of Uzzah, finally understands the chasm. He sees it. In the beginning, he's frustrated. He's angry. He was so ready to bring the ark in. And he's frustrated because he doesn't see, he's, he wants to seek God's face. And he's angry because he can't get God's face. And in verse 9, he says, he comes to the reality. He's afraid. And he says, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? That's the first step. The first step to bridging the gap. He says, how is this chasm going to be bridged? I want to experience God personally. I want to, experience, I want to be changed by the presence of God. How can it happen? He's finally starting to get it. Before, he was overconfident of the ability to connect with God. Like Uzzah, he was overconfident. Now, he's underconfident. He's saying, now I don't know how I'm ever going to be able to connect with God. That's actually the first step. The second step is to see the provision. You have to see the chasm. The chasm has to humble you, but now you have to see the reality. The reality is that there is a provision. The ark, on one hand, it doesn't just smite Philistines. It smites Israelites, too. 
It doesn't just smite the irreligious. It smites the religious too. But it also makes a way. It provides something for us, the mercy seat. The mercy seat is there. David left the ark. He leaves the ark after Uzzah dies. And what, what he does, he leaves it in the house of this man by the name of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom, the Gittite. He's a foreigner. He's not an Israelite. He's living in Israel, but he's a foreigner. And uh, he leaves it in this man's house. And, you know, he's thinking, gosh, in Ashdod, tumors broke out. Plagues broke out. In Beth Shemesh, 70 men died when they touched the ark. Uzzah touched the ark. He was smitten. He's saying in Obed-Eden, this, smit, this, this, this foreigner from Gath, he's a Gittite. Gath, that's where Goliath is from. This guy has no chance. It's just sitting there in his house. This foreigner who's living here in Israel, he has no chance. That's what he's thinking. But then he's told. The contrary. The Lord blessed the household of Obed-Eden and everything he has because of the ark. This Gittite, this foreigner, Obed-Edom, although he was a Gittite, although he was a foreigner, he was descended. If you see throughout the Bible, particularly in First and Second Chronicles, he was descended among the Levites, which means he had some knowledge of the ark. He understood. I mean, even the Philistines understood. They saw the ark. They have some knowledge of the ark. Obed-Edom understood. And so the way he treated the ark, the way it was under his care as a Levite priest, he knew. And he was blessed. He understood. He understood what it took. He understood the holiness of God on one hand, but the importance of a sacrifice as a priest. And as a result, his name, Obed, means servant, a servant of the people. And so he offers himself to stand in the way to bring the ark in. And that taught David the key to connecting with God. If you really want to experience the reality presence of God, if you, right now, if you're hungering and thirsting for just the presence of God in your life, he, here's the key. He says, you can experience the goodness of God. If, this, if a man like Obed-Edom can experience it, that means anybody can experience it. Obed-Edom didn't belong. He was a foreigner. He was irreligious. But if he can experience the goodness of God, that means anyone can experience the goodness of God. He realized there was something missing in his life, and that's the sacrifice. The text says he took six steps, and on that sixth step, he stopped, and there he offered a sacrifice. He learned. The provision was blood, death, suffering, a sacrifice. What is that provision? This is David saying, if, you know, if God, you know, a lot of us, we say here, you know, why can't God just, for, why go through the blood and the death and the suffering and the sacrifice? Why can't God just forgive? Why can't he just forgive Uzzah? Why can't he just forgive us? Why go through the process of the sacrifice? And anyone who says that has never really been wronged in their lives. Think about it. If you've ever really been wronged in your life, there are some things that are done against you that you know apologies are not enough. Apologies are just not enough. If someone commits a horrible wrong to you and just says sorry, you know that that's cheap. You feel cheap. It's not going to work. What are you looking for? You're looking for a sacrifice. What you want is blood. What you want is suffering. You want that person to experience the suffering that you experienced. 
Anyone who's ever loved somebody and has been betrayed by that person understands the need for, because there's a sense of injustice. We were designed that way. This is, this is not you acting against your design. We were designed to understand the concept of justice, and you're saying here an injustice was done, and I want justice. I'm crying out for justice. So when I'm wronged by somebody, there are several ways you can handle it. One way is you can say, I want revenge. I want retaliation. And I want to hurt this person. I want this person to feel the pain that I felt. Or you can say, you know what? I will forgive this person. I don't want any wrong done to this person. But what are you doing then? You're saying, I'm going to absorb the pain. I'm going to, you feel horrible. Because you know that person deserves to suffer. And by that person not suffering, you're suffering. True forgiveness is to say, I'm going to let this person go, but then I'm going to suffer all the debt. I'm going to suffer all the pain, the blood, the tears, the aloneness. I'm going to suffer all of that. That's true forgiveness. Revenge says, I'm going to hurt this person's reputation. That's the modern way of doing it. Nobody here is plotting death. But what we do want to do is we want to kill the reputations. So we go around, we talk about them behind their backs. We turn a great face towards them. Yes, of course I forgive you. But then behind their backs, we say, oh, you know, you don't know. I know things about this person no one knows. That's what we say. And when it's because that gives us power, a sense of power. And we say, we want to ruin their reputations. We want to ruin their face before other people. You want them to suffer. But true forgiveness is to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to absorb all that pain by myself. Oh, that puts you in a place where you're alone. That puts you in a place where you feel like, where's the justice in the world? That puts you in a place where you're like, I, you know, this is right and this is wrong. I understand what has to happen and it's not happening. I'm taking it on myself. That's what it means to forgive. You're taking on the debt. You're taking on the liability. So when we say, oh, if anyone, why can't God just forgive? If that's how we are as human beings, how much more? A holy God with the, in the midst of a chasm with his people, how much more? How much more suffering? How much more of a sacrifice is needed? Now, when we say how much more will God have to suffer in order to forgive us, That's how God made a way. On the cross, that's exactly what we see. Anyone who's ever been hurt, anyone who's ever forgiven truly knows that at the end, when you don't forgive, the anger doesn't die. When you take revenge, it feels good for a little while, but what happens? The anger doesn't die. That that hate actually starts to corrode your soul. That anger settles in. And what happens is tomorrow when you're wronged again, the anger comes back up again. You're even more angry. You're not wiser. You haven't learned. But anyone who's truly forgiven somebody knows that although you suffer the pain and the aloneness and the liability and the debt by yourself, you grow wiser. And you start to internally and subjectively experience what God actually experienced on the cross. Objectively, historically, cosmically as our great high priest. Jesus suffered for the sins of the world. Someone has to suffer. Either you're going to suffer or God's going to suffer. God goes to Jesus and he says, here's what's going to happen. Either your people will suffer or you will suffer. And Jesus says, then I'm going to suffer. Oh, I'm going to suffer and I will take it all on myself. That's Jesus on the cross. David understood that. David understood the gospel because he understood the chasm and the gap 
And in verse 13, he says, this time he's carrying the ark. This time he's carrying the ark. He goes six steps and he sacrifices. He's getting it. And when you understand the chasm, when you understand, but there's no, and there's no provision in your life, oh, there's no, gonna, there's no joy. There's going to be no confidence because there's going to be doubt. When you understand the chasm, you will be humble, but you will not have joy in your life. When you don't understand the chasm, for instance, when you see the provision, what God has done for you, but you don't understand the gap that's been created, oh, there will be joy. There's the thrill. You're going to feel good about it, but there's no humility, and there will be no power in your life. But when you see the chasm and see the provision, that it did not come from you because you could not come from you, then you will connect with God. Because there will be tremendous humility on one hand, and yet all the joy and the thrill and the renewal and the confidence and the peace. Do you understand the difference? You know, if you're a religious person, if a religious person is asked, how do you connect with God? What are they going to tell you? Work hard. You've got to pray. You've got to go to church. Read your Bible. But there's no joy. There's no joy. There's only anger, if anything. There's no connection. But if you ask a Christian, how do you have a connection with God? They're going to say this. On the cross, Jesus bridged the gap. Jesus took on the suffering and the death and the torture and the tears. He swallowed up in his forgiveness. He said, even on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And he swallowed up the anger And the torture, if you've ever been really wrong, you understand the aloneness. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I am cosmically and absolutely alone. And I'm swallowing up the wrath and the anger all into myself. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And he said, yes, we're wronged. But yes, we will forgive. God said, either they will suffer or you will suffer. Jesus said, I will suffer. And I will forgive again and again and again and again and again. On the cross, God's own love satisfied his justice. And when you say he did that for me, that's the joy. That's how you have joy. You know, the rules were not designed so that we would be hammered into God's acceptance. The rules were designed so that we would see that we cannot obey it on our own. And then when you see the gospel and Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you see that he had done that, he suffered the aloneness and the suffering and the blood and the sacrifice, the atonement for me, when you see that, that's going to melt you into his approval into his acceptance. Do you see that? That's how you tell the difference between somebody who's religious, just merely religious, or somebody who's been changed by the gospel. It's the joy. What do you see later on? David, he's dancing. He's dancing. He's dancing so much, his clothes are falling off. He's in a linen ephod, and he's he's not clothing. He's dancing. And Michal, of course, she, she looks at him disdainfully. Why? Because she's in the palace. She's upright. She's noble. She's deserving. She says, are you going to continue to undignify yourself? And David, what does David say? I will do this, 
and I will do it even more. Why? Because for a long time, David heard the words of the gospel. But now, he hears the music. He's dancing. He's free. Are you free? Even now? The beauty of the gospel, it's the ultimate equalizer. It doesn't just speak to people who have not, you know, broken the rules. It actually speaks more intently in many ways to people who have been following them. Because it goes straight to what's so, so important. Why do you follow the rules? Why do you break the rules? It's because deep inside, we still want control over our lives. We follow the rules because what we're ultimately saying is that when I follow it, God has to hear me because I'm doing everything he wants. So there's nothing more he could possibly ask. And as a result then, he owes me. Now, none of us are going to say God owes me, but you can see it in the disappointment when your prayers aren't answered. That's how you know. What you're saying is God owes me. But when the gospel grips you, it flips everything around. It equalizes whether you're religious or irreligious. You're going to say, this debt paid. I'm going to share this analogy and we'll close. I think I shared this one other time or a couple other times maybe before. A person comes to your door, a friend of yours, opposite gender. It only works if it's the opposite gender. A friend of yours of the opposite gender comes and says, you know, did you know that you owe tax payments? You probably had no idea. And you say, oh, my gosh, let me pay you back. And, and, and he or she says, no, it's impossible for you to pay me back because your tax payments date back from the beginning. You owe millions and millions of dollars. And I paid it all for you. I just paid the debt. Oh, how can I ever repay you? You say, no, you see, the thing is, I've been in love with you all my life. And it is my joy. Because I don't want to see you go to jail. I don't want to see you punished. I don't want to see your reputation broken. I want to see you as you are, designed to be as you are, doing everything that you're doing right now and more. I want you to be free. Are you going to say, thanks, and walk away? No, you're going you're gonna to be broken on one hand by the debt and yet broken by love for this person who has saved your life. That's the dance. That's the joy. Friends, don't just read the words of the gospel. You need to hear the music. You need to, you need to dance. David, you know, if David danced because he knew, then we can dance. If David, this dignified king, can dance, then we can dance. Will you do that? As we respond uh, in closing today, will you reflect then on that irreligious heart and that religious heart? Every one of us is both, and we're both perfectly. But what God has done to break through, to enter in, to close the gap for us, through his son and only through his son, what we're going to do then is we're going to relinquish all the ways that we've tried to access and approach him on our own. We can be free. Let's hear the music literally and let's dance. We do that. Let's pray.